David Clement is with us. Mr. Clement is the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center and wrote an article recently in the Financial Post that caught my attention. I wasn't expecting to see it. Don't ban flavored vapes is the title of the article. The subheader says banning flavors for adult smokers trying to quit tobacco is a huge mistake, one that could have deadly consequences. The author of the piece, David Clement, is on the line from Ontario uh, joining us. Uh, David, welcome back to the program. Always good to speak to you. Good morning. For having me back. Uh, Good to have you with us, David. Talk to us a little bit about flavored vapes. First of all, how popular are these and who uh, who's the most common user? Are they actually used more by adults trying to quit smoking cigarettes or is it is it a young person thing? Yeah, so uh, we know from consumer usage and, and, and purchasing data that there are about 1.5 million Canadian adults who use vape products. And the vast majority of those folks are people trying to quit. Uh, okay. So they're smokers. They've maybe tried to quit in the past and it hasn't worked or they've tried other methods and it hasn't worked. And so now they're they're trying to use vaping as a means to quit smoking. Um, In terms of the flavors that the government is looking to possibly ban, Mm -hmm. there are about 650,000 Canadians who use those flavors specifically. Um, And so that's a lot of people. um, That is uh, a considerable amount of people who will be impacted by a ban. And our concern here is that what happens when those folks don't have their um, their harm reduction tool to try and quit smoking, they most likely go back to smoking. And we think that that's a huge public health failure uh, from our perspective. Okay. So, and it's important to understand that this ban, it's being proposed right now. And of course, there's a little matter of an election, I think, probably, David, Mm -hmm. before anything gets really done on this file. But nonetheless, the feds have said they want to ban all vape flavors with the exception of tobacco, mint, and menthol. It's pretty safe Mm -hmm. to assume there are probably dozens of other flavor options right now, right? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of flavors that exist, the, from fruit flavors to mm-hmm. um, everything, really. I mean, the the whole purpose or the whole point of why flavors exist is that we're trying to create an experience that is enjoyable for someone who then no longer wants to smoke to get nicotine. That's mm-hmm. kind of the point of why they exist. It's, it's to say, hey, why won't you, you, maybe you should try something that, it doesn't taste like a gross cigarette. Um, it, it has a, a different flavor to it. And that's how we see, um, that's why we see so many people use it to quit smoking. In fact, the best research from the U.S. where they analyzed about 17,000 uh, Americans showed that those who were using flavored vaping products were about 2.3 times more likely to quit than those who weren't using flavored vaping products. And so we can see in the data that it really is actually helping people quit smoking. Mm -hmm. And if that's a public health goal of ours, we have to keep, um, we have to leave these products um, on on the market for adults. And we should probably focus more heavily on policies that stop youth from accessing these, because that's obviously a serious problem Um, But I don't think we should limit the access of adult consumers 
uh, in the name of trying to fight youth access. Right. Well, it's also interesting, too, and you know, that you have all of these uh, data facts from the United States. This <laughs> this phenomenon, the whole vaping thing, has now been around long enough, David, and is enjoyed by a wide enough group of people that there's a great deal of measurable data out there. And, and so, mm-hmm. uh, as you point out, uh, the flavored vapes uh, are successful in helping adults to quit smoking cigarettes. Does the data just extrapolate another step along the line of those people, David, who are uh, who have found a flavored vapes as a solution to quitting smoking? How long typically do they stay on the flavored vapes before they end up quitting that, too? Or do they ever get to that step? So that is a very good question. And it it, it does. It varies um, by person. So what usually happens is someone's been a lifelong smoker and they try vaping and they become what we call a dual user. So they're using both vapes and cigarettes. And then they slowly transition away from, uh, from smoking altogether and they're just vaping. Um, That is a huge win for public health uh, in terms of the dangers that um, come with each product. So um, when people end up in that category, they can often continue to wean off vaping um, and then go uh, completely nicotine-free, which is fantastic. Um, sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. Um, in terms of timeline, what I've seen is in the span of a couple months, uh, generally speaking. Um, okay. Anecdotally from my own life where I've seen people whom I know who have used vaping to quit smoking, um, they've generally been a few months and um, they've been able to completely transition away from cigarettes and then completely transition away from vaping um, a little further down the road. So it is working. A lot of Canadians are using it to try and quit. Um, It's 95% less damaging for you um, when we compare them to to cigarettes. And the the real kicker here is that there are other public health agencies around the world who've already figured this out, and they're actively promoting vaping to adult smokers. So the UK and Ireland and New Zealand have carried out a variety of different programs where they Mm -hmm. actually go out and focus and target adult smokers and say, hey, maybe you should be vaping instead of smoking because it's exponentially less risky and you could improve your health and you may eventually be cigarette free. So, David, if that's the case, if we now know that other countries, Ireland and the UK, as you say, as examples this morning, if other countries have gone out and done the homework and found that vaping uh, products for adults trying to quit smoking are indeed a, a, a benefit to those who are uh, using them to particularly wean themselves off uh, smoking cigarettes, uh, if they have evidence that this works and this evidence is readily publicly available uh, and shared typically by governments, why is the government of Canada doing the opposite? It's unfortunate. It, 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 very, repre- it very much represents the conversation uh, had long ago about sex education. Um, it, the way in which public health, uh, or, or the way in which our public health officials approach this is very often similar to the abstinence-only approach um, in regards to sexual education. Um, we, knew, we knew then that those people were well-intended, um, but we also know that those, uh, that, that approach fails. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's important to teach 
people about the 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 the, the nuances of um, how, how how you stay safe in regards to sexual behavior. It's exactly the same, exactly the same when we talk about harm reduction. And so we have Health Canada in many instances living in kind of the early 90s um, and, and just thinking that, well, no, you can go cold turkey. You can just quit. Um, well, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way for so many people. And this is a very useful tool to get them to quit. So I'm hoping that that our public health officials can maybe get rid of some of this old and outdated view where it's like either one way or no way. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what we're hoping for in terms of how this, this shifts. Ultimately, harm reduction is something that the federal government has embraced yes. uh, for other other issues. And, and we commend them for doing so, because if we fo- we're really focused on saving lives, that's a huge part of, of doing so. But it does appear like they have this very large blind spot um, when it comes to harm reduction here for, for vaping and flavored va- uh, vape products. Is, is it partly, uh, does the vaping uh, production uh, have a, a lobby? Is this a, a direct result of the, the vaping lobby uh, convincing the government of Canada that uh, this is the route to take? Or uh, wh- where do you think that uh, clearly someone is steering them wrong, David? Yeah, I, so there are, there are some powerful groups who are in the public health space and they actively lobby pretty much for every restriction you can think of. Um, further restricting cannabis, further restricting alcohol, right. they banning certain flavors of vapes. Um, the, the public health lobby in Canada is quite strong. And as, they, as, as time goes on, they start to creep into other areas. I mean, one hilarious one is that, that's about to come up is um, putting warning labels on sports drinks like Gatorade and Powerade, which mm-hmm. is cur- currently being proposed uh, and, I would argue, completely unnecessary. David Clement is back with us. Mr. Clement is the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center, uh, who wrote an article recently in the Financial Post entitled, Don't Ban Flavored Vapes. Banning flavors for adult smokers trying to quit tobacco is a huge mistake, one that could have deadly consequences. And David has been in the process this morning of talking about, uh, first of all, what goes on in other jurisdictions and talking about vaping as an effective tool for those who would quit smoking tobacco. And David, uh, I'm going to invite our our producer, our technical producer, Phil Figueroa, to join the conversation right now with you and me, please, because Phil is a good example. Young guy early 30s, um, started smoking in his late teens uh, and decided Mm -hmm. that's not a very good idea in his mid-20s. And Phil, take it from there because you actually were one of those people who who went from cigarettes to flavored vapes to nothing over a course of how long a time? A a year or two or several months? How long a period was the the, uh, elimination of of the smoking from your life, period? I don't even think it was a year. I I was probably at it for maybe six months. Um, I want to obviously quit smoking, better my health. Uh, I was an athlete, all that good stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, I started off with uh, 16 milligrams of nicotine, did a couple bottles of that, cut that in half down to eight milligrams, cut that in half to four, um, and then went all the way down to zero. And then one day my vape just, I don't know, it just, just 
decided to not work anymore. And uh, I was like, well, I'm not going to go buy a new one. I think I'm good. And the rest is history. I just quit wow. smoking. So I, I I did say to Sterling, I, I did go, you know, on and off a couple of years later, you know, you're drinking at a party or whatever. Someone has a cigar or cigarette, take well, a couple yeah, of puffs. But-, but as far as smoking full time, yeah, never again. Interesting. And Beautiful. David, that's precisely the point, isn't it? That's exactly the way the the, the flavored vapes process is supposed to begin. You, you start with nicotine included, and then you reduce the amount of nicotine in the mix to down as Phil did down to zero. And it's a, it's a, it's a process that any grown up can follow and, and it works. And yet yeah. the government of Canada is determined to ban flavored vapes. Uh, again, this is a, this is, and we're going to talk about uh, ads on junk food here in a second, but what again is the main reason uh, the government of Canada is giving us for doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first off, it's important to hear stories like we just heard because there are so many of them and it very quickly informs all of us that there are a lot of people who use these for very good reasons, mm-hmm. um, primarily to try and get away from smoking cigarettes. So, the, But the main reason why the government wants to go this route is they want to limit access to youth. So that is a problem. Um, there are instances where youth are getting their hands on, uh, on vaping products, and the government's mindset is that, well, the flavors of those vapes will make – well, uh, are, are what are making it that's more the attraction for, yeah right yeah for for, mm. for uh for youth to access it now the thing is is that they've gone basically from zero to 60 here in regards to a policy response without focusing on anything that has to do with youth, youth access they've just gone right to the end and said we're going to eliminate these products even though we know there are mil- or almost uh over half a million adult um, consumers who use them, we're just going to eliminate them and that will solve the problem. Right. Uh, but the, pro- the problem is, is that we also know that this hasn't worked elsewhere. I mean, most, most recently, San Francisco uh, attempted to do exactly this. Um, they banned the sale of flavored products for the purpose of trying to decrease um, youth access. Minors. And sure. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, what they saw is they saw a, a huge uptick in youth smoking. Uh, which is about as terrible of a policy uh, you could have. And mm. then we'll, what we also have um, in regards to more evidence that, that the consequence of this is that it drives people back to smoking is that the government's own submission. Um, so when they have to p- put forward a proposal, they have to do an impact analysis that says, how, how is this going to impact uh, the industry, so the retailers, the people who sell vaping products. Sure, yeah. And um, the government's own report says that they, vapers, would choose to purchase more cigarettes, which will offset the loss that retailers uh, experience because they're no longer selling these vape products. And so the government's own admission here is that they know it will drive people back to smoking. Right. Um, and so I would argue that you can have we we can seriously focus on the issue of youth access but we shouldn't do so in a way that we know is going to drive people back to smoking and going to eliminate a very useful tool for them to quit 
All right, and and I couldn't agree with you more. So uh, again, you're the you're the guy with uh, some time and and the uh, who writes the articles in the paper. How do we do that? How do, how does the government of Canada walk and chew gum at the same time, David Clement? Because you're right, we need to restrict ask access of these products to minors. There's no question. It's it's harmful to say the very least to kids, and yet at the same mm-hmm. time, it's an enormous benefit to grownups. So how do you do that? Yeah. How do you how do how do we do that? That's a very good question. So there are all sorts of ways we could do this. I mean, we could focus on um, penalties and losing the ability to sell age-restricted goods um, uh-huh. at all. So an example would be if you're, uh, if I use a convenience store, for example, um, so you get caught selling to someone uh, under the age, um, you lose your license to sell all age-restricted goods. Um, that would be a possible solution that puts a lot of skin in the game for the owners of these retail businesses, because it's not worth losing your, your sales revenue for other tobacco products, for, uh, for gaming, uh, lottery tickets and things Mm -hmm, like that. So we can, we can try and solve this without banning products. Um, and there are some ways in which we can do it that look at how we're penalizing those who get caught, what the consequences of that are, and just in the consequences really incentivize good behavior. Uh, that's the that's the end goal. Right, and of course that now that's the adult and the retail end of things. The messaging to the uh, to young people, of course, has to be very very different uh, because, uh, as you said earlier, you know if you if you make it more difficult to purchase, you you intensify its attraction. It had it's a it's a strange, but it's weird and it's true. So how then mm-hmm. do you do you get the message through to young people that you know, this is being uh, removed from the marketplace because it's harmful for you. Don't go for it. Yeah. So I think the, I think the best way is just to explain the, re- have an honest conversation in terms of how we educate the youth in this country on what nicotine addiction looks like. It's not, it's not particularly fun. Um, mm-hmm. and, and highlighting that, um, yes, vaping is not smoking and it's better than, um, than smoking, but at the same time, picking up a nicotine addiction without having any other exposure to it is also not a very good idea. Um, and so there's some education to be had in terms of or educa- some education to be um, to be dispersed and some wisdom to be to be dispersed in regards sure. to the reality of that. Um, and so it's very possible for our government to say, hey, if you're an adult smoker trying to quit. This is a very useful tool for you, Indeed. while also saying, hey, if you're under the age of, of purchase and you've never smoked before, don't touch this stuff. It's not for you. Right. Well, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly I know, it's, it's easier said than done, but it's also doable, don't you think, David? Yes. Well, I- I'm, I'm fresh out of time. I'm grateful for yours this morning. We don't. We didn't have a chance to talk to you about your junk food ad ban, which is something else that you've written about recently. So uh, let's just say right here, right now, in front of a lot of witnesses, we're going to have to get you back soon to talk about this because this is this is also, I would think, quite unwelcome with evidence from around the world suggesting yes. it could be another dumb move by the government of Canada. Thanks for this this morning. Yes. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Sterling. Appreciate it.
Ah, pleasure. David Clement with us. Mr. Clement is the North American Affairs Manager with the Consumer Choice Center. And you can find more of what he's written at their website, consumerchoicecenter.org. It is 642, 16 degrees in the morning sunshine, a beautiful day in store for us all. And as John reminded us on the newscast just a few minutes ago, the one factor that's going to be present for us all today is a UV rating of eight, which is very high. So whatever your plans are and wherever your travels take you today, don't forget to take along a lot of sunscreen and apply generously throughout the day. Rick Forchuk on deck, the week's new movies next on CKNW Weekend Mornings. Here's a, 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 a comment from a recent press release from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Quote, small business owners are keen to replace subsidies with sales, but with only a third of business owners back to normal levels of sales, it's just way too soon to phase out the wage and rent subsidies. The government has already started to aggressively cut these important supports just as many are in the process of reopening their doors or facing ongoing capacity restrictions. This from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And we're delighted to welcome Seth Scott to the show. Uh, Mr. Scott is a senior policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business here in British Columbia. He's in New West this morning. Scott, uh, Seth rather, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me on. Well, Mr. Scott, it is a pleasure to have you with us. This uh, business of the feds eliminating or beginning to eliminate support programs way ahead of when they are, uh, while they're still very much at play with a lot of small business uh, people across the country. Seth, this is the, the crux of the conversation this morning. So tell us, first of all, what programs are at play that are being eliminated? Yeah, for sure. So right now, Sterling, uh, what's, what's at play to, to be eliminated is the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy and the Canadian Emergency Rent Subsidy, uh, Susan Sirs abbreviated. Uh, right. The former is uh, to, to assist with, um, obviously, uh, wages for small businesses and, and helping them uh, keep their staff on. And the latter is uh, to ensure that they're able to keep their space um, and, uh, you know, be able to have some sort of physical place for you to go and, and, and uh, shop. Mm-hmm. Now, are these, by the way, are these subsidy programs that you mentioned, are these repayable? Uh, these subsidy programs are not repayable. They're, they're, they're subsidies. They're not loans. Okay. But then they also there's also something called the Canada Emergency Business Account, and that is a repayable program, correct? Yes, that is a, a different program. That, that's a loan uh, that is repayable. So what's the status right now of the of the two subsidy programs, the wage, the emergency wage subsidy and the emergency rent subsidy? They are scheduled to go away completely when, Seth? So right now, the programs have been extended until September 25th, um, and the maximum subsidy amount uh, is going to be uh, decreasing by a certain amount uh, every month uh, until that date. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's not quite enough time for small businesses, uh, that are, you know, <laughs> they're just coming out of, out of the pandemic. They're, they're still reeling. Uh, I mean, in BC right now, we have almost 80% of businesses are open, but only 40% are making normal revenue. So right. if that tells you anything, you know, September 25th is going to be a little bit soon, uh, to, to cut these businesses off subsidies. 
Indeed. And, and of course, in, in here in BC too, Seth, we're a little ahead of the curve because uh, in other provinces, notably Ontario, for example, uh, they are, they're open too, but they have still more capacity restrictions, uh, and some of their hospitality openings, for example, than we do here in BC, even more limiting their ability to return to anything resembling normal. All the more reason to extend the subsidies, wouldn't you think? Indeed, I, I would happen to agree. I mean, in BC, we're, we're, we're fortunate enough to, to, to be kind of in a stage three that's, that's very open. But yeah, businesses uh, across Canada are in much different stages of, of the reopening plans. And some of them in, 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 yeah, for example, in Ontario are, you know, still, still pretty restricted in what they can do. Sure. Um, and yeah, absolutely. So now, as you uh, gather this uh, messaging together with your members from across Canada of small businesses, and you pitch your case to the feds, what uh, what's the uh, what reception has has there been from the, those who, of course, are responsible for these subsidies? Well, Sterling, I, I can't can tell you uh, what the response has been. Uh, we, we put the we put the petition out. Uh, we're asking for basically three things. We want to see it expanded to at least November. We want the subsidies, you know, up and running until November. We want okay. the rates to be maintained at at, at uh, June levels. So we don't want to see a decrease in in what's available to small businesses as we go into September. Right. Uh, and we want to ensure that all businesses are eligible, including new businesses. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, our petition, uh, you know, gets, gets some leverage. If you're a small business, you know, please go onto our website, uh, sign the petition if you think this is important. Um, and that, uh, you know, the federal government will, will hear, our, hear our call and, and uh, make sure to support small businesses. So now, of course, there is a political reality at play here as well. There, I don't think, are too many people left in Canada this morning, Seth, that don't get that we're probably going to have an election in the next short while, probably before the fall, before the expiry date of some of these programs. So as a result, political pressure can be brought to bear during an election campaign. And the government, of course, very much would like this to be a referendum on the pandemic management and very little else, whether that's going to happen or not. Uh, is up to the opposition, I guess. But the, the, my point here is that it, this could become an election issue. Would you like to see it become an election issue? You know, Sterling, um, I, I'm not going to comment on on on. on uh, I'll, I'll let the political pundits comment on on what it, you know is going to happen. Is there going to be an election? Is there not? What I will well, sure, say, of course, is that I hope. Uh, I hope it doesn't need to become an election issue. I hope that uh, you know the government does the right thing right now while they're in office, and they they decide to to extend these subsidies uh, for small businesses that are struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're small businesses. You know, many of them are still going to be treading water well into into next year, and it's not really the right time to take away their life jacket. Yeah, indeed. And that's uh, that's another important fact to just put out there, too, isn't it, Seth, that in terms of the recovery from the pandemic, some sectors of the economy are better positioned to recover more quickly. But for a lot of people, and it it crosses many sectors, they're not going to see any kind of profitability for at least another 12 months. And in that time, between now and then, it's still going to be a pretty tight go, isn't it? Absolutely. It's going to be super tight. And and you're right about that. Different sectors are going to recover at at different rates. You know, for example, right now, you know, I'm sure people are going out to, to, you know, buy things at retail stores or or, or go to some, some, your favorite local bar, local restaurant, but 
the tourism industry is is really still struggling and 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 you know they they're definitely going to take a little bit longer to recover you know on average small businesses in BC are are, are feeling that it'll take around 21 months for them to recover fully uh, mm-hmm. so that's that's quite a long time and you got to think these businesses have been shut down for uh you know quite a long time you know well over a year and you know it's not unreasonable to think that it could take the equivalent amount of time for them to 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 kind of get back on their feet a couple of headlines uh, for our guests this morning our guest joining us from the bc office of the canadian federation of independent business is senior policy analyst seth scott seth your headline first cfib starts petition urging feds to keep small business supports going and that's what you've described to us so far here's another headline for you from yesterday's times colonist in victoria 16 island tourism businesses receive grants as province doles out 36 million dollars in funding the article goes on to describe uh, uh vancouver island uh recipients like uh well the prince of wales uh, botanical gardens uh, uh tofino botanical gardens uh butchart gardens in victoria over here uh, some of the recipients include science world the richmond night market the pne big white ski resort in other words the province is stepping up here uh, to fill in a gap clearly quite needed by many uh, businesses in British Columbia, picking up some of the slack that the feds are creating by, uh, I'm going to say, not going to say abandoning these uh, positions of, of support, but reducing the impact of those subsidy programs. Is this happening elsewhere in the country too? Are other provinces like BC stepping up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, you know, other provinces do have, uh, you know, a varied amount of, of different programs to, to support small businesses in a similar way that this uh, major attractions uh, grant that you're talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, because it has, uh, has played out in BC. Um, I don't have uh, the brain capacity to, to remember every single program uh, across the country in every province because there, there's so many. Uh, right, but, but what I can are. tell you is... But there are, and there definitely are, and and the the one uh, that's in BC here that you were just uh, describing is is definitely really helpful uh, to the tourism industry. Um, so yeah, there, there definitely are 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 those programs popping up across uh, the country. Right. And, of course, a very, very uh, necessary and, again, uh, specifically target here in B.C. towards the, uh, the, the, the sector of the economy that is perhaps most in need of, uh, of, of support, and that's tourism and hospitality. And uh, so as we see this kind of, of support coming from the province, uh, all the more reason perhaps for the feds to perhaps continue the, uh, the programs, but they're already being wound down, aren't they, Seth? That's the problem. They're, we're already in the problem of the process of disengaging, aren't we? Yeah, and that is that is the big issue. You know, we're, we we you're right. We are in the the process of disengaging. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, these programs are only extended until September 25th, and right. the subsidy is decreasing. Uh, you know, consistently, you know, month by month. So. Yeah, we're winding down. The province is, is, is you know, has, has their own programs, but the federal government, you know, certainly needs to support small business and keep these, these subsidies going. 
Right. And uh, therein uh, lies the, the difficulty in terms of convincing the feds that maybe they're there. And again, it's it, it's possibly uh, in part, at least forecasting, right? Their forecasters were saying that, well, if we start to reduce the program and phase it out by mid-September, that should see enough uh, cash returning to the tills of small businesses across Canada that they should be able to take care of it themselves beyond that. But it's simply poor forecasting. That it's unrealistic in terms of returning to anything resembling normal for a small business operator, isn't it, Seth? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, small businesses are, are, are telling us that, you know, this, this forecasting is not right. They're telling us they're the ones on the ground. They feel, uh, you know, their lack of revenue. They feel that the consumer, you know, maybe there's not as many people coming in or there's not quite the consumer confidence that they're going to be, you know, they would hope for in September. You know, they're, they're the ones that are that are out there, you know, feeling the real effects. Uh, of the of this program you know winding down and uh yeah i would say that the forecast is probably not you know right on uh they they need that support at least until november Right. And if you go to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business website, friends, you'll see this uh, petition. Small business petition campaign urges the federal government to halt the phase out of wage and rent subsidies. Um, and I'm assuming there's lots of support and lots of signatures on that petition already, Seth. Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting some good support on that petition. And, uh, you know, like uh, like Sterling just said, if you're listening to this and you want to add your voice to our petition, you know, please please go onto our website, uh, please go to our initiatives page and uh, and add your name. Uh, you know, you know, let the government know uh, what you think of of them. You know, winding down these subsidies too early. Hmm. Uh, it's also a pretty safe bet that, with the given the kind of support the government of Canada has provided to small businesses and others in the population for the over a year now with the pandemic, uh, we've run up a bit of a national debt. Uh, perhaps you've noticed uh, this implies somewhere down the road. Clearly, after all the electioneering is over, this implies higher taxes. And this is going to be another burden that small businesses are going to be asked to share that they're not going to be in much of a position to do uh, as they try desperately to get back to something resembling normal. We're going to get hit with tax increases. Are you hearing that from your members? This is a national organization, Seth. You're talking, you have members from here to Newfoundland and Labrador, for crying out loud. I suspect more than a few business people feel that tax thing the, the sort of lurking in the wings. Well, you you suspect right because you know uh, small businesses they they you know regardless uh, of the additional cost uh, whether it's tax or, or something else they cannot afford to take on more right now they cannot afford to take on more costs they can't shoulder uh, a tax increase so mm-hmm. you know um, now would not be the right time now or or in the future in the near future would not be the right time uh, to to put an additional cost burden onto small businesses uh, including uh, an increase in tax. Indeed. So again, uh, the the point the point here this morning is, and uh, it's a pleasure to have Seth with us to drive home the point. Uh, you're looking for support from small business operators across British Columbia, across Canada, but you're the BC guy, and here we are in Metro Vancouver. And I think this morning, Scott, uh, uh, Seth, rather, we've got uh, an opportunity to make sure that small business people know that at least they have a voice through the CFIB, your organization, and that that voice is heard when you petition the federal government. 
government and you sit down, you can have meetings with federal uh, government officials that those take place and you do get responses. So this morning, the point is go to that website. If you're a small business operator interested in seeing those subsidy programs continuing beyond what is it? September 26th, right? September 25th. Yeah. Okay. So again, uh, it's all about going to the website and signing the petition. Yeah, absolutely. Please go to the website and sign the petition. Uh, if you want to know more about the CFIB, uh, go to our website. We have uh, some great resources on there. Um, we have an amazing small business everyday campaign that uh, we'd love we'd love you to be part of as well. Um, yeah, uh, hope hope to hope to hear from from all the great small businesses out there that need some. As devastating heat waves sweep swaths of the globe, farmers here in Canada are facing a crippling phenomenon. Crops are baking in the fields. Cherries have roasted on trees. Fields of canola and wheat have withered brown. And we're hearing here in British Columbia half the raspberry crop burned on the vine. And as feed and safe water for animals grow scarce, ranchers may have no choice but to sell off their livestock. Here's a quote from our next guest. Quote, it will totally upend Canadian food production if this becomes a regular thing. Our next guest is Dr. Lenore Newman, director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, where she is also an associate professor of geography and the environment. Dr. Newman, Lenore, good morning. Thank you for joining us. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning. Great to be on. Well, this raspberry crop business really hits home. We start seeing uh, stories of something that matters to us and something we know has direct, immediate economic impact in our own backyard. We tend to sit up and take notice. And this is something, this this heat, uh, the heat dome we had a couple of weeks ago is another hot week on the way. We're going to be back up into the 30s in this part of the country. And uh, you in the valley, a little warmer than us at English Bay. But still, this is a phenomenon uh, attributable to what? Yes, so the the heat dome was certainly new and uh, is uh, definitely a result of climate change, but it's not one we really expected. And Mm -hmm. so I like to say farmers are really resilient and we have a lot of tools we can use to adjust to climate change, but not if it's going to be 40 degrees regularly. It was just too hot. And we all got to feel it firsthand, which... uh, was quite something. Indeed. And is this, uh, is this a one-off or is this something that, because is it a cumulative enough effect of climate change that it's going to become more predictable going forward? Well, that, that's the, that's the billion dollar question for okay. sure. And we sure hope it was a one-off. And really, if you'd asked me a week before, if it could be that hot here, I would have probably said no, because climate models would have said, no, it doesn't get that hot in the Pacific Northwest. So what we're hoping is if you put the climate change we already have into the model, it would say that a heat dome like that should happen once every thousand years or so. And so what we hope is we just got incredibly unlucky, but a more you know, a more terrifying option is we've passed some sort of threshold in the system and these kind of stalled weather patterns we're seeing around the world could happen more often. And if we look at what happened in Europe, it was kind of the mirror image of what happened here. Is it just, it rained and rained and rained. Whereas we baked under this just crushing heat. We can't adapt our crops 
if we're going to suddenly have it be 20 degrees above normal. Right. So then, um, uh, if this turns out to be more than just a one-off, clearly there are important lessons to be learned. And uh, and you, you are already talking about the adaptability of the farming community uh, and the and having some tools at our disposal. So let's assume that there there is a lesson to be learned here and we need to pull out the toolbox. Where do we go? Well, first of all, we have to address the problem and we have to get a little more serious about making sure the problem doesn't get worse. Uh, and that means really looking at climate solutions that cut emissions radically. But some of the things we can do if we can avoid these really bad one-off effects are looking at, okay, looking at changing our crop profile a bit to crops that are more resilient to heat. Sure. Um, We also need to account for the fact that uh, in winter, when we're not thinking about the heat, we currently bring in about $2 billion worth of leafy greens and small fruits from California. But California is having much worse problems than we do. They so sure are. What we, yeah, so one solution we can unfold is to look at growing those crops year-round locally indoors, which is a bit of a win because we get a bunch of jobs, we get local fresh produce that's even better, and the technology is at a stage now that we could really unroll a system that provided us with some of our crops year round, but that doesn't help us on the animal side or the grains, the things like that. So, right. yeah, it's a bit of a scary time trying to adapt to this. Well, and, but at the same time, the, to, to, the hothouse industry is already firmly and very successfully established in British Columbia. We know how effective it is. So it would simply mean uh, to uh, a fairly significant expansion of an existing industry in some cases, wouldn't it? Oh, for sure. And we have a bit of a we have a bit of a head start, which uh, is a great thing because we do have a good hothouse industry. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a boring topic. But one of the problems we run into in B.C. is zoning is uh, it's quite uh, I mean, as everyone listening knows, land is kind of the limiting factor in British Columbia, no matter mm-hmm. what you're doing, finding places to fit in greenhouses and make sure they're an allowed use, it's actually a real struggle, and it's something we need to kickstart and uh, really look at how do we encourage more people to go into this industry. Uh, because it's certainly uh, shown by uh, those who have successfully entered the industry. Uh, I know there are Canadians uh, from uh, this part of the country who are installing uh, hothouses literally all over the world in in, uh, in places like the Middle East, where there, there's certainly no shortage of heat, but there are other conditions that inhibit uh, food production big time. And so we are exporting this technology. Uh, so we're certainly capable of, of more uh, developing uh, uh, and more productivity here in our own backyard. I wanted to talk to you, though, very briefly, Lenore, about the impact this summer of the heat and the uh, destruction of some of the crops. For example, I mentioned raspberries only because I heard that about half the BC summer raspberry crop this year uh, was baked on the vine. So raspberries are going to be expensive, more expensive for us this summer, period. Any other immediate impact economically, locally? Yes, it was widespread, and it was quite uh, frightening. And we, 
we sort of saw the damage unfold spreading, you know, east as the heat dome moved east. So here on the coast, we have cool weather crops. So we saw damage in cranberries, in blueberries, in raspberries, mm-hmm. and uh, quite extreme in the raspberries. Um, we also saw some really unusual ones, uh, such as uh, oyster oyster farmers reporting they'd lost their oysters because it right. just was too hot. Mm-hmm. And that was a new one. Didn't see that one coming. Um, then as we went into the interior, now the interior is a place where heat is actually usually a good thing because it's quite warm weather crops, but it was just mm-hmm. too extreme. And so we had these weird effects such as cherries and apples getting burnt on one side. Right. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of farmers uh, in the fruit industry up there lost uh, 20%, 30%. Um, uh, good news, though, for everyone who likes wine, it looks like the grapes were at a stage they weren't badly damaged by this. But then the one that appeared a little later was on the prairies, and you mentioned uh, the animals. Um, what we saw was uh, really heavy damage to prairie crops uh, right. in some regions. And yes, because they're feeding the animals, uh, there's now a lot of farmers who are culling their herds frantically because they just won't have the feed. And uh, yeah, it's the scale of the damage. And uh, if we look around the world, you know, we saw the flooding in Germany, which was the flip side of that, flooding in China, extreme heat. Uh, A lot of people in agriculture are just calling it a very bad summer. Indeed. Well, of course, we're, we're watching the Olympics uh, and going on in Tokyo right now, and everyone is commenting on the very extreme heat conditions. I mean, it's summer in Japan. It's, it should be no surprise. But again, it seems to be extraordinarily warm. And this, so this is a phenomenon not by in any way limited to North America, is it? No, it's not. And so I will say it is possible we just got badly unlucky. And that 1.5 degrees or so of heating we've put into the system so far generated a one in a thousand year summer. Mm -hmm. Um, However, if we keep putting heat in the system, it will happen way more often. And, you know, farmers are resilient, but if they start losing crops regularly, a lot of people just give up because we've designed an entire food system that works in a certain temperature range. Sure. You can't move that around too much and have it still work. So, you know, it's a real wake-up call. It's time to get very serious about uh, carbon. It certainly is that. There's no question about it. As we all went through the heat dome just a couple of weeks ago, and it's going to be another warm one in the few days ahead, Lenore, there's no question we're all, every last one of us, going, my goodness, this. I hope this isn't about to become the new normal as we struggle to find something resembling normal in the first place after this COVID stuff. Uh, this is, this is, everyone is, is aware. Everyone's talking about it. A final question to you this morning, Dr. Newman, what should governments be thinking about in terms of prioritizing uh, their policies? Well, I think governments do have a role to play and they should be looking at policies that uh, really help farmers and the industry adapt all the technology they possibly can, both to lower climate impacts, so lower carbon output, but also to be as heat resilient as possible. And I think, like you mentioned, Canada can be a bit of a leader. Sure. We can be making technology that we can sell around the world. And yeah, I think basically government, 
you know, often agriculture isn't the most exciting portfolio. It doesn't get quite as much attention as some of the other ones. I think it really needs to, because at the end of the day, whether it's hot or cold, we do have to eat. A pleasure to welcome Laurie Chordick to the program. Laurie is the General Manager, Community Relations with our BC SPCA with some good news for us on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Laurie. Welcome back. Good morning. Good to have you with us. A couple of headlines. This one from the uh, Times Colonist uh, uh, over in Victoria. BC SPA, SPCA, rather, looking to free up space for wildfire animals with half-price adoptions. Interesting headline. Flesh it out for us, Lori, please. <laughs> well, what's happening is we've been very busy in the wildfire regions providing emergency response. So our officers sure. do, do go behind the evacuation lines and rescue animals um, where they're owners were not able to get them out when they were evacuated. Mm -hmm. So we've been bringing animals out um, and we're also providing emergency boarding for people who have come out with their pets and they may be staying in hotels or with friends, but they can't keep their pets with them. So we offer free emergency boarding. But because of that, because of that influx of owned animals that we're holding for them until they can um, take them back home, we're trying to create space in our shelters for that. So we're having a half-price adoption event. It was a 10-day event. It ends on July 30th. Um, So we're hoping to adopt out as many of our homeless shelter animals as possible. Um, There was a bit of confusion. We want to make sure we're not, uh, people don't think we're adopting out the people's animals who we've rescued. Those are just in in temporary boarding. Uh, But we're adopting out as many animals as we can so that we can create as much capacity as much space as we can to help those people that have been impacted by the wildfires. Indeed. So the uh, the half price adoption applies to every BC SPCA shelter in the province, not just in the fire zones. No, it's it's we have thirty six shelters across the province. It applies to all of them, and it's on every animal except for horses. So it's dogs, cats, puppies, kittens, small animals, farm animals. Um, so uh, any any animal that anyone is looking for, we have that uh, uh, available, and we really hope we can find not only for those those shelter pets we want to find them wonderful loving homes obviously uh, but if we can create capacity right across our province to be taking in these animals impacted by the fires uh, we just really want to be there for people who are facing such a tragic situation in their communities Absolutely. Laura, can you take a moment and talk to us a little bit about what your people on the ground do? You mentioned, for example, in evacuation zones, and there are many again this morning, uh, people have been ordered out of their homes and in many cases on very, very short notice, uh, leaving in many cases animals behind. So they tell when they leave, they go, you know, we've, we've left the animals at the house. So your people hear about this and clearly they have to cooperate with the fire fighting service people and the the police, uh, but there must be some kind of coordinated effort going on. Talk to us about how your people get behind uh, the lines after people have been evacuated in order to rescue their animals. Absolutely. And we do this every wildfire season. We have our special constables. And uh, what happens is people will contact us and say, this is my address. Um, I wasn't at home when the evacuation order came through. I have two dogs and a cat. So we'll know what we're looking for in which locations. And we obviously have to work through, as you say, the emergency services and get permission to go behind the fire lines. But when we get that permission, then we go to the houses 
we get those pets out of that. And we often, too, if there's areas where there's been an order, but um, there may be uh, horses and cattle and other animals that they were not able to move, but they're not in immediate danger, then we also, as we're doing now, um, our officers are behind the lines providing food and water and make sure those animals are okay. And if animals can be brought out, then we do that. Interesting stuff. And again, a a part of the uh, work of the SPCA that very few of us uh, get to see, first of all, and and, uh, therefore to develop an appreciation of. The other headline that you're joining us to talk about this morning is from, uh, in this case, the North Shore News. British Columbians are keeping their pandemic pets, according to the SPCA. Uh, Compared to uh, previous years, apparently returns, and there is such a thing, are down. Yes, I mean we always at the BCSBC we always actually have a very low return rate for pets, and there's sometimes just reasons that it doesn't work out, and people have to bring animals back. But we've always sure. had a very low return rate, usually under five percent, and I think that's because we do a lot of work up front with people in the adoption counseling process to really make sure it's a good match for people. It's right. not. The idea of the adoption counseling isn't to see if you're good enough to to have a pet. It's really to make sure that we understand what you're looking for in a pet, and we match you with the kind of pet that meets your needs and that you're going to be a good fit for that animal. So we always do have a low return rate, but what's been happening across North America is that after the pandemic, there was very high adoptions, but um, the return rates are very high, but we're actually finding that they've dropped since the pandemic here in BC in our shelters. So we're really happy to see that people who did reach out to get a pet during the pandemic are really committed to the life of that pet and and are continuing to care for them. It is indeed a good news story. Uh, Laurie, in in this story that I I quote uh, the headline of, it talks about uh, a couple of recipients of pets, including a woman who received a a rescue pet from Taiwan. I uh, ran into some people walking my dog, also a rescue from the SBCA, by the way. Uh, And and these people... uh, their, her dog was from Nicaragua. How, how, what sort of volume are we doing here in British Columbia of animals imported from abroad specifically to be rescued? I mean, I think it certainly is a, a new trend that's happening. One of the things that we do caution about, because obviously we would want every animal in the world to be rescued. That's our heart and soul is these animals. But one thing you do have to be careful of is that there's different diseases in different countries Um, and so it can be something uh, that because the animal population in BC here has not been exposed to before Mm -hmm. new things can be introduced and new things can spread Um, I remember after Hurricane Katrina in uh, New Orleans um, many dogs were uh, rescued and couldn't be rehomed there and were brought into Ontario and these dogs reintroduced heartworm into the animal population there. So because there are different diseases, we're, we're a bit cautious in terms of just, you know, bringing animals in from anywhere without all the proper medical uh, work that needs to be done. But certainly um, it is something that seems to be growing in popularity. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.